it would really be a, a silly, sad story of just a strange child being born in a weird circumstance. If we don't have the cross in view at Christmas, then Christmas loses its power. But if all Jesus was born to do was to die on a cross and stay dead, then we just have a terrible story of a martyr. That you did not stay dead. And therefore we see Christmas in view of the cross, in view of the resurrection. The roaring lion who was born as a, a little lamb to be slain, but stepped out of the tomb conquering sin and conquering death once and for all so that we wouldn't fear death. Death is powerless. The sting of death is gone because our sin has been taken away. So Father, show us this morning how to meditate on the beautiful realities of Christmas. Prepare our minds, prepare our hearts for a beautiful season of Advent when we get to remember, purposefully think, and contemplate the beauty of the Christmas story. God, we love you. Guide our time now. Be our teacher. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. I know that we normally turn to Judges and we're going to do that next week. We're going to do that for a couple more weeks and then dive into a little bit more of a a thoughtful look at Christmas together. But for this morning, we're going to continue our break in the book of Judges. We did last week by uh, looking at Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving. And we're going to take a break again this morning from our study through Judges by looking at Philippians chapter 4. Because we're entering the the Christmas season. These are the the holiday season. Starts at uh, Thanksgiving, so we're at the beginning of this Christmas season it's a beautiful time, fun, festive, uh, gathering with friends and family. I think because it is such a wonderful time, we have begun to rush into it. I put my Christmas lights up on our house on Monday before Thanksgiving. If that offends you, I am very sorry, but my answer to you is, when is it ever wrong to celebrate Jesus? Okay, so I win. Um, <laughs> The holiday season begins in November. It keeps on getting backed up. Even before Thanksgiving, we start seeing Christmas trees on display. We start seeing wreaths. We start seeing all these lights. Um, I, I've heard it said that Thanksgiving is like John the Baptist, where there's, it's just a forerunner to something much greater that's coming down the road. So Thanksgiving points us to the season of celebrating Christmas, which is much better. <laughs> and it just keeps getting backed up, right? I, I, think, I think before long, we will be shooting off fireworks and saying, Happy Fourth of July and Merry Christmas. We're just going to back it up all the way to July. Preparations for Christmas, a beautiful thing. And, and I thought as we have prepared our homes, as we've prepared our, our families, as we've enjoyed, uh, just even in this room, you can see a little Christmas tree back there and a little wreath hanging up on the wall. As we prepare our, our um, externals for this season, I thought it would be appropriate to prepare our hearts and our minds. This season goes by so quickly Before you know it, it's gone. It's January 1st. It's a new year. We take the lights down. We put the Christmas tree away. This is it. We're done. And we have to wait another 365 days before we get it back. And so I don't want to lose these moments. I don't want to lose these moments where we get to tangibly 
just always in our face think about the, the Christmas story. I want to just wring every last drop that we can out of this season. And so to that end, I wanted to just preach a sermon before we launch into that season together. We, we had Thanksgiving, and I thought it would be pastorally helpful to get our thinking oriented around how we are supposed to view these moments coming up. How are we supposed to view all of these decorations? How are we supposed to view the Christmas story? How are we supposed to view having family devotions with our kids about Christmas? And I thought the appropriate place would be Philippians chapter 4, and I hope you will see why as we go through it. I want to read in verse 4 all the way down to verse 9 and pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll dive in together. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit or your meekness be known to all men. The Lord is near. He is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think about these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Father, I pray that in these moments that we have together this morning that your word would illuminate our understanding so that we would be able to see and discern and comprehend throughout the Christmas season what it looks like to be thoughtful and thankful thinkers, to be intentional about what we choose to dwell on, and that we would dwell on the right things this holiday season, that we would make the most of every opportunity that we have, not only for our own hearts to be centered around Christ, but for those around us. How often do we walk into a department store and hear a song about Jesus being played over the loudspeakers? What a beautiful opportunity we have to share Christ with others around us. So Holy Spirit, come once again as you have always promised to do, as your word is opened to show us Christ, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that we would be changed and would take what we learn today out these doors into this world, a changed people. We pray it for our good, yes, but ultimately for your glory to be seen in our lives. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives us in verse 8 six adjectives two nouns, and one imperative, one command. Six adjectives, two nouns, and one imperative. The command is very clear in verse 8. Dwell on these things. Uh, think about these things. Dwell on these things. It's following a list. These things is the list that he says, dwell on these things. But the list isn't exhaustive. That's why there's two nouns alongside of these six adjectives. The two nouns, if there's anything that is excellent or anything that is worthy of praise, um, excellent, virtuous, moral excellence, worthy of praise, both of man's praise and of God's praise. Those are the nouns that kind of flesh out everything that the list is saying. So we have 
our imperative, we have our two nouns, we have our six adjectives. But the whole list here that we see fills out a grand schematic of how we are to think. This is the way that our thinking should look. We're called to dwell, the imperative, dwell on these things, dwell, lagidzomai, lagidzomai. We get our word logic from that, um, to, to dwell, to concentrate, to evaluate, to think carefully, to do the math on this one, do the math on what is around you. And this word, lagidzomai, is in the present tense, so it's every single moment of every day we are to be doing this. In context, verse 8, uh, Paul says, Finally, brethren, as everything has been said, here's one last thing. All that's left to do is do these things. Paul's going to write about how to think, and in light of what he said, he's going to say at the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to say, this is how you're going to stand firm. And so this rounds out how you stand firm. How are you to, verse 4, rejoice in everything? How are you to do that? How are, you, how are you to be thankful and to not be anxious? These are all ways to stand firm, and it all goes back to your thinking. Verse 4, we're called to direct our emotions. You must rejoice in the Lord. People have a hard time with that, that you and I are called. We're commanded to direct how we feel. How do we do that, Paul? Paul would tell us based on what you think. What you think changes how you feel, so if you're feeling a certain way, change how you're thinking. Don't do this. Verse 6, don't be anxious for anything, but instead replace it. Be prayerful, thankful, and take every request to God. But all these things are fleshed out by what we think, how we think. What you think about is crucially important. It determines your character. It determines your destiny. It determines who you are. One pastor says it this way, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. What you think is who you are. What you think determines who you are and who you are becoming. There's a war for your soul, and it takes place on the main battlefield of your mind. John Stott says the battle of the Christian life is the battle for the mind. This is where it all begins. If you lose the battle here, then you lose the war altogether. So, control your mind. And everything else will be controlled. This is how God made us. God made us so that everything would start with the mind and flow out through every other aspect of who we are. Let me give you just a couple of verses. You can jot these down and look them up on your own time. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. Your thought life is who you really are. That's who you really are. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How you think changes the way that you live before God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that's literally in the Greek, be being renewed constantly. So be renewed by the Holy Spirit on a continual basis. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. You will become like what you are dwelling on. So if you're dwelling on things above, you will become like the things that you're dwelling on. If you dwell on things of the earth, you'll become like those things. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Paul doesn't say take every emotion captive because emotions flow from your thinking. Take every thought captive. Why do we need to be so careful about our thinking? Well, the Bible tells us that we need to. Also, just practically, our brains process tens of thousands of thoughts every single day. We need to be careful. We need to filter. Some thoughts are forced on you. Some you get to choose. 
it's true that some thoughts just pop in our heads and we wonder, I don't know if you've had those moments, why am I even thinking about this right now? It just pops into your head. That's true. And some people say, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, one writer says it best. It's true that a bird can land on your head, but you don't have to let it build a nest there. It's true that thoughts can pop into your head, but you don't have to dwell on them. You can get rid of them by dwelling on something else. I think John Owen is helpful here. He says this, If we think like Christians, we can test ourselves by asking whether our spiritual thoughts are like guests visiting a hotel or like children living in a home. There's a temporary stir and bustle when guests arrive, yet within a little while they leave and they're forgotten. The hotel is then prepared for other guests, so it is with religious thoughts that are only occasional. But children belong to their house. They're missed if they don't come home. Preparation is continually being made for their food and their comfort. And all the mothers in this room said amen continually. Mommy, can I have a snack? Mommy, what are we having for dinner? You just ate dinner. Mommy, what are we having again? We're hungry. Dessert, dessert, dessert. The holiday seasons give us all sorts of different varieties of pies and desserts, and the kids just love the holidays because sugar, 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 sugar. Spiritual thoughts that arise from true spiritual mindedness are like children in a house, always expected and certainly inquired for if missing. So are your spiritual thoughts like guests in a hotel or like children in a house? I think what Paul says in verse 8 when he says, dwell on these things, think about these things, he's giving us an admonishment this morning, an encouragement and a challenge that we need to be, and we could put it this way in just two-point outline, very simply. We need to be thoughtful thinkers. We need to be thoughtful thinkers. This is not our culture's strong suit, right? Our culture is not really good at being thoughtful in their thinking. Uh, Even the word amusement, everybody wants to amuse themselves. Uh, Muse is the word for thinking, and the A before muse is the alpha privative, which takes away, it negates it, right? I'm a theist, An atheist negates there is no God. So amusement is literally no thinking. And that's what our culture is completely steeped in, amusement. We need to be the opposite. We need to be thoughtful thinkers. Don't react. Be purposeful in your thinking. When you're free to think about whatever you want to think about, what is it that you think about? The Bible has a beautiful picture of how we are to do this in the Christian life. And the example that I would give is, if you've ever been to Disneyland, and you walk in down Main Street, turn to your right, and on your left-hand side, there is, there's an image that made my son just weak in the knees when he saw it. It's just a huge, ten times life-size picture of Buzz Lightyear with an Astro Blaster on his arm, shooting an alien. And my son just thought he died and went to heaven. Like, this is amazing. And so we go in, we get to meet Buzz Lightyear, the real Buzz Lightyear. I don't know if you know where he lives. He lives there. And he never moves from where he lives. And he stays there, and you get on the car, and you have these little laser uh, guns, and you try and shoot these aliens. You guys been on this? Yes? My daughter wanted to go on this with me and decided that it would be really fun as I am trying to win this game, to just turn the joystick. So we're constantly going like this, like, Chelsea, stop. And this is supposed to be the happiest place on earth. It currently isn't for me. While I'm trying to shoot and not hitting anything, 
my daughter's just having a blast, just shooting up. There's no, there's no aliens above us, just shooting up and going back and forth. When I play the game, because I play to win, why else play a game? I aim at the little target that you're supposed to aim at, and when I find one, I don't move off of that target. I don't know if you have this strategy when you play that game. Like right when you enter into the room, you find your spot and you stay there. And as your car moves, you just move with it. And you, my fingers still hurt. I went to Disneyland two years ago and my fingers still hurt from going, I think I broke something here, I need to go see a physical therapist. That, when you acquire a target, when you're staring for a target, you find it, you don't, you don't take your eyes off it, you lock your eyes on it, and you just keep shooting, the Bible has a word for that. And the word in the Bible for acquiring a target, fixing your eyes on it, holding the trigger down and firing constantly, that word is meditation. Meditation, biblical meditation, is to think about something specific. This is why we, we can't let Eastern mysticism steal our biblical word. Eastern mysticism thinks of meditation as the exact opposite of biblical meditation. Eastern mysticism says you empty your mind. Meditation is just you sit, you think about nothing, you try to think about absolutely nothing, and you become one with the universe. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. You think about one thing, and you think about it as hard as you can, and you don't relent, you don't let up, you don't, you don't stop, you keep on going. Paul will tell us here in Philippians chapter 4, that we need to acquire a specific target. He's going to give us six ways that we can tell if we've got the right target. And as we acquire the target, we keep on shooting uh, the trigger, pull the trigger back on that specific target and don't let go. That's biblical meditation. And if you specifically point to the right things, Isaiah 26 verse 3 has a promise. If you haven't memorized this verse, you need to memorize this verse. He, God, will keep him whose mind is stayed on God in perfect peace, who trusts in him. And it's kind of weird English. I memorize it in an old King James kind of language. But God will keep you in perfect peace if you do two things. If your mind is continually stayed on him and you trust him. And if your mind stayed on him, you're going to trust him. And you'll be in perfect peace. Do you want perfect peace? Then keep your mind on God so we need to be thoughtful thinkers, number one. Number two, I'm going to say it this way, since we're just finishing Thanksgiving and we're going into the holiday season, we need to be thankful thinkers. So we need to be thoughtful thinkers. We need to be careful what we think about. And then as we think, we choose to think about what we want to think about based on what the Bible tells us. We need to be thankful in what we're thinking about. And so let's go through these six different adjectives in verse 8. And what I want to do as we go through them is I want to connect them specifically. I'm going to apply them specifically to the Christmas season. These are overarching over every thought we have, but specifically to the Christmas season as we prepare our minds to celebrate these next few weeks together. Number one, verse eight. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. This is the first adjective. Whatever's true. So we're supposed to dwell. There's our command, dwell, end of verse eight. Dwell on these things. Whatever is, number one, true. This is Whatever corresponds to reality, whatever is truly true. I like the, the words that Francis Schaeffer used, uh, the true truth. Not what you think is true, but what is truly true. Not our opinions, what is truly real. Uh, the same Greek word, whatever is true, that same Greek word in um, verse 8 is in Acts chapter 12, verse 9. Peter is in prison. 
And an angel shows up and says, hey, I've come to get you. Let's get the shackles off and come with me. And Peter stays there because he thinks it's a dream because uh, Luke tells us in Acts, he did not know what was happening to him was real. That's the same Greek word, real, true. Whatever is real, whatever is true. What does Paul mean then in verse 8? I think what Paul is saying is our thoughts need to conform to the reality of God's word. They need to conform to what is truly true. Let me give you an example of this. Think about the disciples in the boat. Mark chapter 4. They're in the boat. A huge storm. They're going down. They're sinking. And they are distraught. They're fearful. They're terrified. Why? They're looking around at what is happening to them and what is true to them. They see the storm. They see the boat going down. But Jesus is asleep in the boat. He's asleep on a cushion. He's just totally fine, knocked out, just as comfortable as can be. Why? Because he's going beyond what is happening to the true truth. He knows he can't die in a boat. He has to die on a cross. He knows it's not going to end this way. He knows that this is not, as he says constantly, my hour has not yet come. So he's able to sleep and be at peace because he knows the true truth, not just what appears to be reality. Many people focus on their worries, their fears, what could be, what might be. And in doing so, they live in an imaginary world that brings so much fear instead of living in a world of truth. What is truly true? Where do you find out what is truly true? This book. This book is, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, the lamp that's shining in a dark place to which we do well to pay attention. We need to Get this book in our mind so that we can see the world through the lens of what's true, what's really true. Let me say it this way. If your Bible is getting dusty between Sunday and Sunday, if this book is sitting on a shelf, you go home, you put this book on a shelf, and it collects dust between the Lord's days, you will have a very hard time having lasting peace and lasting joy. You're going to have a hard time having lasting peace and lasting joy because you're going to be seeing the world through a false reality, what is not really true. We have so many things to be thankful for, and this is one of them. This book, we know what our God wants from us. We know what he demands of us. We're not left in the dark wondering. Praise God for that. Now, whatever is true, let's think about this in light of Christmas. During the Christmas story in the Bible, there are so many things that look like they're completely out of God's control. Completely out of God's control. I think the first one that happens in the Christmas story is Mary and Joseph find out that they need to go to Bethlehem because of a census. Um, We've got to pack up, move our stuff. Oh, and by the way, I'm nine months pregnant. This is the worst time to do this. I think that Joseph, we know Joseph and Mary are righteous individuals and they have to be asking when they get that letter in the mail and they see we got to go to Bethlehem for a census, they have to be saying, God, you've got to be kidding me. Here? Now? Why? There had to have been a better way to do this. But they go. And the true truth is not that God was out of control and something terrible happened to them. The true truth was God was making prophecy happen. So if God's asking you to go through something that seems like an absolute aside from what you really want, seems like a huge speed bump in the road, maybe it's God fulfilling something that he's promised in your life. It looked like Mary had committed some form of immorality. I mean, how many other Jewish women were going to try her excuse 
on their parents. Ah, I'm pregnant. It was the Holy Spirit. I was, just trust me, it was the Holy Spirit. And there's not many people that are going to get away with this. It looked like she had committed immorality. In fact, that follows Jesus his entire life. You were born out of wedlock. How can you be Messiah? But actually, it was prophecy being fulfilled. It looked like Jesus wasn't even going to have a place to be born. But the true truth was that he would have a stable and a little feeding trough for his bed. It looked like he was just a lowly peasant. The, the, the reality of the situation looked like this is a common person. But the true truth is he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the second person of the Trinity in a feeding trough. It looked like Herod was going to kill Jesus. But the true truth is that his hour had not yet come. He wouldn't be killed as a little baby. In fact, Jesus was going to die for the babies that Herod killed. He had to stay alive. Mary and Joseph escaped. It looked like the Messiah was only going to come to Israel. It looked like the Messiah was going to come to ethnic Israel and save ethnic Israel from their oppressive uh, Roman leaders. But Simeon sees past that uh, in the temple. He knows the true truth, and the true truth is you have come as a light to the Gentiles and the Jews, to all the world. Think about whatever is true. By the way, the, the list that I'm giving you for Christmas is not exhaustive either. I would encourage you to take these thoughts and run with them throughout the Christmas season. What's true about this season that you can think of? Realities that are truly true from God's Word. Secondly, Paul tells us, whatever is honorable, whatever is honorable, this is that which is noble, majestic, demanding honor, respectful, lofty, rightly elevated, dignified, revered, many adjectives that would describe this. Basically the opposite of every person we're looking at in the book of Judges. This is just a beautiful, honorable thing. But in the New Testament, the Bible only ever uses this word honorable in conjunction with a person. So I would submit to you, first we have whatever's truly true in God's word and truly true in the world. And secondly, we should be thinking and dwelling on honorable people. Uh, this word is never used in the New Testament apart from somebody that it's attached to. Paul uses this in Titus to speak of honorable uh, elders and deacons. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 as well, honorable elders and deacons. Who's honorable in the Christmas story? Oh, we have so many honorable people. How about Joseph? Joseph says, I am fine to live with this um, potential just banner of infidelity flying across our marriage for the rest of our lives. I'm fine with that because I believe God, as the angel had told him, no, no, this has to happen the way that Mary said. And he adopts Jesus. He adopts Jesus into his family. An honorable person. But the wise men who give gifts the desire to keep Jesus safe. I, I love that when they talk to Herod and Herod says, hey, whenever you find him, come back and tell me. And I just want to know how many minutes it took after that conversation with Herod before one of the wise men said, did anybody else get a really bad feeling about that guy? Like, there's something wrong with him. I don't think we should go back. And then the angel shows up and says, don't go back. And that one wise man goes, I told you we shouldn't have gone back. Honorable people. 
What about the innkeeper? You guys remember, we've talked about the, the innkeeper idea. We have a, a tendency to think of the Christmas story as Mary and Joseph are going back to Bethlehem looking for a Motel 6 that has a vacancy, right? We tend to think of it that way because we have the word innkeeper. Innkeeper is not a good word uh, to translate the Greek word kataluma. Kataluma is a guest house. It's a residence of, of a family that would have a, a portion of their house that you could stay in. It's Mark's parents' room. It's the guest house that Jesus says, can we please take the uh, Passover Seder there in, in Mark's parents' house? It's a, it's a known relative. So it's not that they're showing up at Motel 6, knocking on the door saying, um, is there any room in the hotel? And the people say, sorry, no, no vacancy. They're, Joseph is going back to his place of birth. He's going back to where his relatives are. So he's knocking on his relative's door saying, can I stay in the guest house? And whoever is the owner of that place, maybe a great, great uncle, says, hey man, we've heard about the scandal. Supposedly God got you pregnant. We don't buy it. You can't stay here. You remember that infidelity would have been cause for stoning and then in the New Testament time, they would have said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. But it would have been caused for a ceremonial, ritual funeral. You are dead to us. As Joseph knocks on the door, maybe the great uncle opens the door and says, eh, nobody's here, shuts the door. But somebody in that house, known in our Bibles as the innkeeper, says, you know what? I am sure that my wife's going to be really mad at me for doing this. But I've got to a stable in the back. It's a little cave that we turn into a little stable. You can stay there. We'll, we'll keep it secret here. What an honorable person to say, you know what, despite the stain of your sin in this situation, supposed sin, I'm going to be gracious to you. What a beautiful picture of what God did with us, with our true, real sin. And then obviously Mary, honorable, most blessed of women, what a beautiful picture of honor that this woman says. It's, it's uh, as you have said, let it be done. Just submissive, obedient. Dwell upon honorable people. And as you read the scriptures this Christmas season, dwell on those who are honorable and have done honorable things in this account. Number three, third adjective, whatever is right. Whatever is right. That is uh, what meets the standard, whatever conforms to God's character, whatever is in harmony with God's being. It's righteous, it's just, it's fair. This is used 79 times in the New Testament. It's the most used word on this list in the New Testament. But typically, it has to do with praising God for right having won. This is praising God for right winning the day. We see evil happening all around us, and this is saying God, God wins. Right has won. The bad people will ultimately be destroyed, and God himself will reign. God says this, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 25, The Lord himself will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Isaiah 61, verse 8, I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery, and I will faithfully give them, the robbers, their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with the righteous. Right wins. Right wins. This is Paul telling us to thank God in advance for right winning the day. I, I think of Christmas carols. Joy to the world, right? No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorn infest the ground. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That has not happened yet. I have cut myself on the rose bushes that we don't even want in our front yard, and we fall into them. It's like a magnet for my children. They, there's a sidewalk that has no rose bushes, and somehow as they're riding their bikes, they stumble, they fall, and they circle around, and they tumble and find themselves in the rose bushes. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. That's why we sing joy to the world. Just as Jesus came the first time as a, a promised fulfillment to the prophecy, he's coming back the second time. And so as we enjoy a Christmas season where we remember his first coming, we're seeing through it to a second coming. Jesus is coming back. God wins. Right wins. Think again about King Herod, one of the most powerful men in all of the world at that time. He thought he had a plan to kill Jesus, kills all the babies. He's ordering the murder of these children. It looked like wrong was going to win. But evil cannot defeat God. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in this. When you see evil all around us, and we see it all the time, just turn the news on. You can have this as a promise for your soul that you see everything through. Let this be the glasses that you wear. When you see evil, you say evil will not ultimately win. It won't. Right will ultimately win. Christmas is a beautiful time to remember. Right will win. It does win. It has won. And it ultimately will win forever. Number four, whatever is pure, whatever is pure, that is morally holy in an ethical sense, that which is good, that which God would approve of, that which is holy. Obviously, the, the entire Christmas story is littered with God's holiness on display. When the angels show up, uh, people fall down like dead men, and they always have to say their first answer that they give to any human that they see, this has to be an angel training 101. Just memorize this phrase, do not be afraid. You always have to memorize, do not be afraid, because every single person you're going to meet is going to fall down like a dead person, and you're going to have to say, don't be afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they see the radiant holiness of God. It's just a reflection of God's holiness onto these angels that we see. The shepherd and the wise men worship Jesus for his holiness. Mary, in her Magnificat, sings a song that says, I praise God for giving me the privilege of bearing the Messiah who will save me. My own son will be my savior. And obviously, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the virgin birth. We celebrate the fact that Jesus bypassed the, the line of sin. Because he was not born of a man and a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was pure, he was holy, he had no sin nature. And because he had no sin nature, he can live a sinless life and he can die as a perfect substitute on the cross. Think about whatever is pure, whatever is holy. Number five, whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. This is the only time in the Bible that this word is used. This is the only time in the New Testament where this Greek word is used, lovely. If you want a, a fun word, I don't know why theologians do this. They make up words. They just make up words to try and define things, but then you have to define the made-up words so that you can understand what they were trying to say. This is the business of people that have way too much time on their hands. Uh, one word, when, it's, when a word in the Bible is only used one time, you want a, a fun phrase, it's called a hapax legomena. 
Again, who needs to know that? But it's, it's a hapax legomena means there's only one time that this word is used. And this word lovely and good repute is only used one time in the Bible, which obviously makes it a little bit harder for us to understand what it means because we don't have other settings and scenarios where it's used. So lovely. The closest thing that we have is New Testament is written in Greek, Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and then uh, when um, the, the Greeks came in, and when Alexander the Great said, I think Greece is awesome and everybody should be Greek, he said, stop reading the Old Testament in Hebrew and read it in Greek. So he made a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. That's called the Septuagint. And so in the Old Testament, translated into Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, we see this word lovely. And it's actually, you know where the story is. It's in the story of Esther. Remember when King Ahasuerus decides he wants to find a new wife? Story's really weird. I don't know if you've read it in detail. Story's really weird. He's like, find me a new wife. So people go out and they just pick the prettiest women and they parade them in front of him. And he goes, I think she's the prettiest one. She'll be my wife. He just picks her because she's lovely. And that's Esther. You know the story. But it says specifically that King Ahasuerus picks Esther because she is lovely. That's this word. She's lovely, beautiful. This word means, as one pastor says, those things which give pleasure to all and cause distaste to none, like a welcome fragrance. It's the opposite of disgusting. I would say it this way. They're beautiful realities. Whatever is a beautiful reality. Whatever is a beautiful reality. By the way, this has great bearing on the way that we view evil. You can see evil. You can, you can even dwell on the evil that's happening with the backdrop of a beautiful reality coming from it. It's okay to do that. So here, whatever's a beautiful reality, think of all the beautiful realities that happen at Christmas. God himself, God the Father, is sending his own son to be born as a perfect human being for you and for me. Prophecy itself is being fulfilled. How about just physically beautiful realities like the star in the sky that the wise men see and they are amazed by and they follow. There's so many beautiful realities, songs that are sung, the Magnificat, the songs that the angels sing, glory to God in the highest. How about, probably in my opinion, the most beautiful reality at Christmas? Mary holding her newborn son. Those of you who have held a newborn baby, you know that that moment is one of the most profound moments that you will ever experience. Holding a child, a newborn, doesn't even have to be your own. But when it is your own, and when it's God himself in human flesh, and you get to be his parent, I mean, just think about uh, me as a parent, one of, one of the reasons why I'm so glad that I have kids is I just get to tell them about Jesus. I get to every day tell them about the greatest reality in my life, in their life. They don't even really know it yet, but I just get to tell them about Jesus. It's why I live life. I just want to tell people about Jesus. Imagine Mary having that same privilege, getting to tell her son about himself in the scriptures. There are so many beautiful realities at that nativity scene that we need to plumb the depths of this Christmas season. Finally, number six, and lastly, commendable. Whatever is of good repute. Some of your translations say commendable. Um, there's, de there's different ways to translate this one as well. Again, because it is uh, the only time that this word is used, it's two words, two Greek words put together. 
One is good, and one is report, repute, um, something that's well spoken of. Some of your translations might say a favorable repute. I think the best way to translate this, especially in light of what we're talking about, is a good report, good news, or maybe even glad tidings. Think about whatever is good news, whatever is glad tidings. This is the same idea that the angel said, don't be afraid, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And I'm going to give you a sign. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And the shepherds run as fast as they can and they worship Jesus. The greatest reality at Christmas time that we get to celebrate is this very point, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the reason why Christmas exists. Jesus was born for the purpose of dying, and he died for the purpose of rising, and he rose for the purpose of being your Savior and my Savior, of being your Messiah and my Messiah, of being your King, the one who would take away your sins, the one who would make an end of your sin, the one who would change your affections. If you are truly saved, your taste buds start changing. You used to love sin, and now you hate it. You used to hate God, and now you love him, and you can't get enough of him. That's the good news of Christmas. And as we start, we're just at the very beginning of this journey into the holiday season. Don't let a moment go by without thinking of these things in light of Christmas. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is of good repute. Think about these things, and specifically in light of the Christmas season. As you see lights, as you see nativity scenes, as you see crazy decorations. Think about the glorious, beautiful realities of Jesus being born for you and for me to die in our place and to rise from the dead, offering forgiveness for sins, offering removal of shame, offering no fear in death and no guilt in this life, all for the glory of his name because he loves us. Father, we thank you so much for these beautiful realities that we see in scripture. We thank you for Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this morning and through this Christmas season and forevermore. We love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. And so we desire now to remember what it felt like awaiting the arrival of Jesus that first time. We know what it feels like because we're awaiting the second coming. But God, as we, as we sing and confirm these beautiful realities to our own souls, May we do so with a sense of longing. May we do so with a sense of grateful gratitude and thankful thinking as we dwell on the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Come thou long Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength.
stand with us as we sing that Jesus was born to deliver his people, born a child and yet a king. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a eternal spirit. Jesus, my Redeemer. Jesus, my Redeemer. Name above all names. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for sin. Thank you,
you, oh my Father. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is God, we do thank you for giving us the gift of your son. He is the reason why we have any gifts at all. He is the giver of all of the good gifts that you have given because he's the greatest gift of all. And I pray that this Christmas season, we would be able to look back 20 years from now and see this changed the way that we viewed the holidays. We viewed the celebration of the Savior being born. May every song that we hear, every decoration that we see, be an opportunity to remember the beautiful realities of Christmas. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Blessings on the rest of your week. No small group this week. We'll pick it back up next week, so hang out with somebody, get to know somebody a little bit better, and we'll see you next Sunday as we continue our study in Judges. Blessings on the rest of your week. Where can I run in times of trouble?